Coming up on Garden Talk. Mother plants aren't the same as production plants. You have a different strategy there. We don't want too much nitrogen. Too much nitrogen depletes the stored carbohydrates in the plant. It'll slow down rooting when you take the cutting. If you wait until the plants are suffering, they're turning brown and dying. So, oh, let me just add some of this. It's not going to magically bring them back. Maybe they'll come back a little sooner than they would have, but really you want to do it before the stress happens. If you dissected your soil after a grow, you'll see that there's pockets of roots where the water was flowing and there's pockets where there's no roots at all. But with the yucca, it would be more even sponge of roots. Nature has all the answers. This isn't anything new. They have all the answers if you know where to look. And then if you can work with nature in an intelligent way, now you're a gardener. Now you're really doing your job. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 92. In this episode, I interview Harley Smith. He has been gardening for 27 years and is currently the chief science officer for Total Health Cultivation. He is regarded as an expert in plant nutrition as well as organic biostimulants. He is also well known in this community for bringing information that's backed by science. In this episode, we get into various topics, tips, and gardening hacks that are backed by science. If you gain value from these podcast episodes, please click that like button and also subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. That way you can be notified when new episodes are released. If you'd like to support even more, visit patreon.com slash mrgrowit. There are various rewards set up for those that support, and you can pledge any amount that you'd like. 100% of the money that's pledged through Patreon goes right back into the podcast. It helps this podcast keep going, so thank you all that support over there. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring free gardening information of all plants to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to Grow Strong Industries for sponsoring this episode. They have Gorilla Grow Tents, which I've used for many years. They are well known for their thickness, durability, and height adjusting roof. They also sell super closet products, which consist of grow boxes, grow cabinets, grow tank kits, and hydroponic systems. To see their products in action, check out their first ever Grow Strong Grow Off. Go to their website, growstrongindustries.com, linked below, and use the discount code MrGrowIt for 15% off. AC Infinity is sponsoring this episode. They have two different series LED grow lights, the Ion Board and the Ion Grid. The Ion Board fixtures are board style and use Samsung LM301B diodes, while the Ion Grid series has an open center design and uses Samsung LM301H diodes. I'll have a link in the description section below so you can learn more about these grow lights. And you can use discount code MrGrowIt if you're buying off their website, acinfinity.com. That discount code works for all AC Infinity items. Or discount code MrGrowIt15 if you're buying off Amazon. Thanks to Mars Hydro for sponsoring this episode. They have a ton of deals going on right now for their Black Friday sale, which is happening all month. Different products are on sale each week. Everything from grow lights, grow tents, grow tent kits, ventilation systems, and more. Also, check out their live stream on November 25th, where they'll do several giveaways. Go to their Black Friday page at mars-hydro.com sale to see all of their deals. I'll link it in the description section below. And you can use discount code MrGrowIt to save even more. And we're back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Harley Smith. How are you doing today? 
Great. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. You have been highly requested. Many, many people uh, requested for you to come on. So I'm really thankful that you decided to come on today. Today, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of various topics, tips, and gardening hacks, really. Techniques that are going to make things easier for you and save you time. I actually attended Harley's Master Growers course a few years back. Excellent course. I learned so much. And I'm excited to have you on here today so I can pick your brain a little bit. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into gardening? Sure. Um, I'm Harley Smith, as you introduced. Uh, right now, I'm today I'm the chief science officer for a commercial production facility, Total Health Cultivation, in Michigan. But I started back in 1995, uh, almost getting close to 30 years ago. And back then, I was a video producer. I wasn't a gardener. I was making videos on science and technology. And I was hired by uh, a company uh, called Superior Grower Supply. And they asked me to produce a video introduction to hydroponics for schools. So I knew nothing, but I, by the time I finished the series, I knew enough that I knew that there's something to this hydroponics. I really got hooked. I knew that it was a great way to teach the science. I knew that the, there was a great need for it, especially here in the United States, because we're so far behind the rest of the world. So I ended up getting in as a career, uh, working with schools, setting up hydroponics labs all over the United States, doing professional development workshops for agriculture teachers about hydroponics. I was showing people how to improve the nutritional quality of food, and improve the plant's natural resistance to pests and disease. And I got quite the reputation. In fact, I got such the reputation for knowing the science that I finally got the white jacket. I was hired uh, by a fertilizer manufacturer in Michigan to be their director of research. And that's just the beginning of the story and it goes on. Don't, don't want to forget the most important part. Along the way, I got my first grow light, an oscillating fan, and started growing tomatoes and herbs in my basement. And then that's where the, the real journey began. It wasn't just doing the research and interviewing NASA scientists and educators. It was actually hands-on. And that's where a little trial and error made some of those rookie mistakes. And maybe today that we, we can help new other growers avoid making the same mistakes that we probably made early on. But trial and error turned into trial and success. And here we are still standing. So pretty significant background there. You've been doing this for a very, very long time. And I know from taking your Master Growers course, you know a lot about chemistry. And chemistry really combines with gardening quite a bit. And uh, I'm sure we're going to get into quite a bit of chemistry as we go on here today. But let's start with clones. Can you talk to us about things that can be done to help clones root and maybe anything else we need to know about clones? Rule number one, healthy moms healthy clones. You have to have strong, healthy mother plants. And it, mother plants aren't the same as production plants. You have a different strategy there. We don't want too much nitrogen. Too much nitrogen depletes the stored carbohydrates in the plant. It'll slow down rooting when you take the cutting. So first rule, reduce the nitrogen to the low end of sufficiency for moms. And then it, improve the uptake of calcium because if the calcium 
forms the glue that glues the cell walls together. You get a stronger vascular system. The plant takes up and distributes all of the essential elements more efficiently. So they all build up in, into, the, uh, into the tissue. So you take the cutting, separating it from the mom, it has to depend on the stored carbohydrates and water and nutrients that are in that cutting. So if you have a strong, healthy mom, lots of stored carbohydrates, it'll root faster and, and afterwards. Now, another thing you can do, once you start to get the initial rooting early on, those initial roots coming out, you can add some kelp extracts and kelp has auxins and cytokinins that will stimulate more lateral root growth and more root mass. So first is, is the, the material itself. That's the most important. And then you can do some things to help the plant take up nutrients and get a good, strong health head start. I know some people are going to cut their clones at a certain angle, for example. They say that that helps with rooting. Is there anything to back that? Or is that just something that uh, maybe somebody picked up, tried out, thought that it rooted faster, but may not actually root faster? It's it's not a huge difference, but I do. I cut it on a 45-degree angle simply because it gives an oval, so you get a little more surface area for the roots. But you could cut it straight across, and you'll still get rooting. But, you know, there's something to it, but it's relatively insignificant. I know some people that will even scrape the, the outer bark a little bit just to... Uh, to show more of the surface area of that Precambrian layer. But uh, who has the time to do that on large scale? Yeah, me as a home grower, I've done that before where I kind of scraped off the sides a little bit to help with the rooting. And, and that mm -hmm. definitely has worked for me in the past. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it is beneficial. But if in the mother plant has deficiencies or it's all stressed out, it's not a good thing to take clones from. And that's what I kind of want to get into next is stress tolerance of plants. What are some things that gardeners can do to improve plant stress tolerance? Okay. Well, I think the number one thing is this is where biostimulants come in into play, not just the nutrients themselves. But uh, Virginia Tech, for example, did a 10-year study on biostimulants, and they found the combination of five parts humic acid, humic and fulvic, to two parts kelp, five to two ratio, worked 50% more effectively than either one. And one of the things that that combination did is it stimulated the plant to make 50% more of an enzyme called superoxide dismutase that protects the plant against stress, heat stress, salt stress, UV stress. The plant will stay green longer, recover faster. So that would be a, a key if the plants, but the best way to do that is before the stress because you're making plant protection agents to protect against the stress. If you wait until the plants are suffering, they're turning brown and dying, say, so, oh, let me just add some of this. It's not going to magically bring them back. Maybe they'll come back a little sooner than they would have, but really you want to do it before the stress happens. And should that be applied as like a soil drench or foliar or either? Or? Oh, that's good. If stage zero of cloning is doing a foliar spray with that same thing. The kelp, the, the humic, or fulvic. I like either one. I kind of prefer fulvic for foliar over humic. 
humic more for the soil, fulvic more for hydro or for the leaf, and add a little bit of yucca extracts as a wetting agent to it, a very small amount, so that the water doesn't beat up on the surface, spreads out in a film. So two weeks before you take cuttings, do a, a light mist with the kelp, fulvic acid, little yucca. That's all it takes. But don't do it any more than once a week at the most. Once every two or three weeks even will have a noticeable beneficial effect on the plant. So it will help the plant literally pull nutrients into those tissues. Pull in the sugars and the nutrients. So they're stored, the battery is fully charged. So yeah, you can use that at the roots because then you get more root mass. There's a sponge to take up water and minerals. And then you take use it at the surface on the leaf to pull the nutrients. The cytokinins literally pull the nutrients into the tissue. So you gotta push from the roots, pull from the leaves, lots of beneficial trace elements too, you're adding. Yeah, if you have a healthy mom along the way, you are going to see a very high percentage of rooting and there'll be shorter period of time than normal. That's a great tip. You mentioned yucca, and I think a lot of people are probably watching this. I have a lot of uh, beginner and intermediate folks. I'm sure there's some people out there that haven't even heard of what yucca is. Can we get a little bit deeper into that? I know you wrote an article for Maximum Yield all about yucca. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what is yucca and what are the benefits of using it? Um, by the way, you can go to the archives in Maximum Yield. If you do Harley Smith maximum yield, You'll, they'll show a lot of my articles. You could probably read the whole article. But yucca is a desert plant and the roots can be used to make an extract, which is has saponins in it, it's kind of soapy. Um, and it's a natural fungicide and natural wetting agent, both. The plants themselves will make saponins uh, as their as a plant protection agent against fungi, it attaches like like a steroid, steroid like, attaches to the cell walls of a fungus and it deactivates it. So that plants make saponins. Yucca is rich in saponins, so it makes uh, so it's beneficial as a wetting agent. So the water will spread out in a thin film on the leaf when you add that, and uh, so it's more easily and efficiently absorbed. And it doesn't beat up into and just make spots on the leaves. Uh, and it has a fungicidal properties to it too, even though it's not a fungicide in itself. Although they tested it over in Europe, they've cut back on copper fungicides in the fields because it's heavy metal and it's uh, contaminating the, the groundwater in the soil. So they were looking for alternatives. They did one study on apples where they just used yucca and water only into the spray, and it was just as effective as the chemical fungicide. So it's, and it's also biodegradable. So it's because it's just a natural chemical made by plants. So as a, I, I like it as a, as a foliar, but you could also, if you make that foliar spray, and you spray it, and you have some left over, don't put it on the shelf, it'll go bad, because it's very biologically active. It'll, be, it'll feed the microbes, so you don't really want it on the shelf. Have any left over? Use it at the roots. The yucca also will help the water disperse through the root zone, especially in growing mediums and soil. So the water and the nutrients and the biostimulants get to all the developing root hairs. 
around the edge of the pot. It doesn't just go in and flow through and go out down the drain. It spreads out, disperses. Yeah, from my understanding, it can be very beneficial if you have a soil that's gone hydrophobic. So uh, it helps, you know, as a wetting agent, helps re-wet that soil or re-moisten that soil, I guess you could say. Now, my question is, is this, would this also be considered a surfactant? Yes, it's a natural surfactant, sort of like, like soap would be. In fact, it is a little soapy, but you can see it. I mean, if you wanted to do an experiment, you could take a piece of wax paper and have a drop of water or some nutrients and one and the one with the yuck in it and just put them side by side one will make a will beat up like a puddle the other will just spread out like a film and having it spread out like a film in the root zone that's a good thing otherwise the water just follows the same path you did the last time you watered it around the edge or down through and it builds up some pockets of salt and it really if you dissected your soil after a grow you'll see that there's pockets of roots where the water was flowing and there's pockets where there's no roots at all. But with the yucca, it would be more even sponge of roots. Yeah, I use, I've been using yucca and uh, I actually left the bag open and it hardened up. So um, are you saying that, is there like a shelf life on it or can I just like re-crush it up and then put it into water and mix it up? You could re-crush it. It's very, it, it, very hydroscopic. Is that it? Where it attracts the water? right? Not hydrophobic is the op hydroscopic. So if I get a, a bag of yucca, the first thing I do is I take it out of the bag and put it in a glass you know, I can get a really good seal on it. And you could probably even put a desiccant in it too, if you want to have it last a long time on the shelf. But once it gets wet, it doesn't go bad. It just makes it really hard to work with. And you're using such a small amount. It's like a 16th of a teaspoon for five gallons of water. It's hard for me to, I just do a few grains of it, put it in for a quart of foliar spray, shake it up, and it'll start foaming. It doesn't take, I can't even measure how small amount that you need to add. So you can scrape a little off of it if it's hardened up a bit, scrape a little bit and then put it in, it would work. So that makes sense. And for the folks that are using it as a soil drench, can you overdo it? I know some people are using it every single time they water their soil. They're putting a little bit of yucker in there. Um, is that bad at all, or is that perfectly fine? There's limits. I don't know what that limit is. Um, you can overdo it, but um, just remember, it, dilute, dilute, dilute. Just take a small amount. It'd be. I've never used enough that it hurt, did any harm at all. So, um, but theoretically. You could do an overdose of just about anything, including yucca. Okay, good to know. Let's flip it up. Let's talk about amino acids. So talk to mm. us about amino acids and how they can be useful. Well, now you're getting to the heart of my R&D, why I got the jacket. Um, tell you a quick story. Back in the year 2000, remember this story from the class? Back in the year 2000, the Dutch government made all synthetic fungicides illegal on food crops because all of those fungicides had at least the potential for negative side effects on, on human beings. So they said, nope, can't use it, gotta protect the environment, gotta protect people from the fungicides. So overnight, the, the Netherlands, cool, overcast, very in the greenhouses, very susceptible to powdery mildew and mold, just naturally, cold and damp. So the growers started losing 
a large proportion, 40% of their crop to powdery mildew, gray mold. So they had to do something. So they started, they got hold of some of the of a biostimulant product from Germany, coming out of Germany, that had some promising side effects to use on plants. In 2001, I was invited to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, to visit all the schools, the agricultural schools over there, but also to visit the greenhouses that were doing the first trials with that organic biostimulant, Eco-1, highest level of, of organics. I got to interview the Dutch grower who was doing the trials for the Dutch government. He went from losing 40% of his crop to losing zero. He got a 10% increase in yield over any past year, and he was first in the line for sugar content in the fruit. He was growing the best of the best. It was actually, that particular grower was a strawberry grower. Strawberries are very susceptible to powdery mildew and mold. So that was kind of the torture test. So um, I knew there was something to it. I, I interviewed the German scientist that, that produced it. Asked him what was in it, he wouldn't tell me. It took about 10 years of R&D on his behalf, so he wasn't going to give away his secrets. I came back, spent four years digging deep. <laughs> I found it. I cracked it. It was amino acids. Here we go. Two of the amino acids, glutamic acid and glycine, literally stimulate root cells to open calcium ion channels. So instead of the plant taking in one ion at a time of calcium and then taking it up in the plant, they open the ion channel, a thousand calcium ions, tens of thousands flow into the plant and are taken up. Calcium is the glue that glues the cell walls together. The plant takes up more calcium. Instead of water in the interstitial space, you have calcium pectate, pectin, the glue that glues the cell walls together. When a mold spore lands on a leaf, it doesn't germinate in the surface water. You could just spray it, wash the spores off. But the foot is still in the tissue, and it comes back. But if you use um, the amino acids, the plant takes up more calcium. Instead of water in the interstitial space, by the time that mold spore is able to penetrate the cells to get to the water in the interstitial space and become established, it dries up and dies. So it isn't killing fungus. It's not a fungicide. It's improving the plant's natural resistance to the fungus. It stops it from getting established and spreading. That's why they were able to reduce the losses to zero, because it never got hold. Now, I don't want, I'm getting excited about this one, but not only is there a physical barrier, but the extra calcium that the plant doesn't use in the cell walls, it will store it in the vacuole of the plant. It stores it up later. If a little bit of powdery mildew or, or gray mold or gets a, you know, on a leaf, the plant recognizes the chitin, that's a chemical, a chitin in the cell wall of the fungus. Plants don't have chitin. They have cellul cellulose. So it knows it's under attack. It, the plant literally sends a signal molecule from the surface of the cell to the vacuole to open up calcium ion channels inside the cell. And thousands or millions of calcium ions go into the cytoplasm. It starts a chain reaction. 
the plant starts a chain reaction, an oxidative burst, which is the plant's first line of defense against the fungus or even against some insects. So we're building up a natural resistance in the plants without using any chemical fungicides. Oh. So it's, it's revolutionary, really, when you think about how much we as growers lose to mold and mildew. Anything that we can do to give the plant a competitive advantage is, is worth it. And amino acids, Eco One, highest level of organic certification. Uh, they also feed the microbes in the soil. You know, that's a nitrogen source for micro microorganisms to eat. So it's a win-win. Healthy, mixed healthier soil, healthier plants. Also remember the kelp extracts, which are very common for gardeners. They have amino acids in them. So some of it's there. Microorganisms in the soil, by the way, make amino acids. They make an en digestive enzymes called proteases that break down proteins into the building blocks of proteins, which are amino acids. So they're li literally they're making amino acids right on the surface of the roots. They've been doing it without a store, hydro store, for millions of years. We're just working with nature. We're just giving them a little push in the right direction. Nature has all the answers. You know, it's not, this isn't anything new. They have all the answers if you know where, where to look. And then if you can work with nature in an intelligent way, now you're a gardener. Now you're really doing your job. And it's fun. It's fun to see it actually work. Let nature do the heavy lifting, right? <laughs> well, one other thing about amino acids I wanted to bring up that I learned in your course was it helps with well water to prevent lime scale. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's true. That's how I actually got on the clue got the final clue to solve this mystery. I have hard water at home. In fact, it's very hard water. <laughs> so I could literally, when I add my phosphoric acid to lower my pH, the pH down, I could literally see crystals of calcium phosphate forming and falling out of solution like snowflakes. That, that's how hard it was. And I had lime scale clogging out my pumps and my emitters on the side of my reservoirs. I couldn't even scrape it out end of a grow. But amino acids are what are called chelators, intermediate chelators. Chela means claw. So they attach to mineral ions like calcium ions, like a claw. It holds it tightly enough so it doesn't react, doesn't lock up in the soil, but loosely enough so it's released to the plant on demand. So that was my first clue when I got my amino acid blend to work with from a vitamin manufacturer out east experimental product, put it in the first thing I noticed, no more lime scale. Where did it go? At the end of the grow, instead of trying to scrape all that off, that lime scale off, I literally took a paper towel, wiped a little film of algae, rinsed it with water from the hose, it was clean. So where did all that calcium go? Oh, into the plant. How did it get there? The amino acids and the calcium, there's some relationship there. That was the final clue. So I Googled, went to Google. Um, <laughs> I did cal calcium amino acids, and it took me to some studies where they did latest studies around the world where they're doing patched clamp analysis and learning, learning about calcium ion channels. There it was. Oh, by the way, when I went back to the Netherlands a few years later for another tour on biofilters, bio for cleaning water naturally. But I was over there 
I told them about the research I was doing with the seven primary amino acid chelates. They told me I knew more about their product than they did. And they were pumping me for information. So yeah, the amino acids, they not only chelate the calcium to keep it more available from locking up, but it also stimulates the uptake of calcium. And plants do that naturally with the help of, uh, especially with the help of microorganisms in the soil. Oh, and you don't need, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, amino acid products on the market now. And I think people have learned from me along the way. And some of the manufacturers are adding amino acids right to their nutrients. So it's out there. Just need to know where to look. Definitely beneficial information for those folks that are in hydroponics or even using just a reservoir and have that lime scale. Being able to add in the amino acids and get rid of that is 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 huge. I want to get a little bit deeper into water, particularly kind of chlorine in water. There's a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately. But um, you know, if there is chlorine in the water, I'd like to know what harm does chlorine do to the plants, and what can gardeners do to get rid of the chlorine? Yeah, there's there's two different forms of chlorine in municipal water supplies. You know, one was more of a chlorine type gas that's used to kill microorganisms, harmful organisms in the, in the water. And it can, at high levels, it can damage root, microscopic root hairs because it's an oxidizer. You know, it's uh, killing the bacteria, but it's also harming the roots, uh, especially at high levels. Now, chloramine is a more recalcitrant. It lasts longer in the water. Uh, according to the EPA, though, it's not harmful to plants or to people, but it is harmful to fish and microorganisms. Now, if you want to get rid of both, you want to get rid of the chlorine, well, if you want to just get rid of chlorine, you know that's the only, that's the only thing in the, in the municipal water, just have a side reservoir and let the water sit overnight. The chlorine gas will just dissipate into the air. Put a bubbler in there, it'll dissipate a little faster. So that's all you need. But if you have the chloramines, they're not going to dissipate. But you can get an activated charcoal filter. It's, it's not an RO filter. It's an activated charcoal filter. And there's some that are designed to, to remove the chlorine and the chloramines from the water. So if you're, if you're, you're hesitant and if you're going to make compost tea, you want to get rid of the chlorine. You don't want it to kill the beneficial microorganisms in the compost tea. So... You know, just an activated charcoal filter will do the job. I think a lot of people are concerned uh, that are growing in living soil and rely on those microbes in the soil in order to break down the amendments so the plant can uptake them. They're concerned that the chlorine levels in their tap water is killing off all their microbes. Now, on the opposite side, some people, the argument towards that is that once it's released from the actual faucet, the chlorine level isn't going to do harm to the microbes. What's your take on that? It'll do harm. It'll, it'll do harm until it's dissipated enough. Um, I've, I've done it. I mean, we've looked at it under the microscope where you have had some uh, compost tea, and then we took and then we, we mixed up another batch with that had the city water, and you, you could just see that they weren't swimming around. They're they're sluggish. The microbes are sluggish, or they're they're not even, or they just die with the chlorinated water. But I guess it depends on where you are. In general, I don't think, I mean, I've grown plants for years in the city, in the, in the store with city water. Never had problems. But once in a while, you'll get a problem with the water supply. 
you get a heavy water, you get a little flooding in the spring, you get some backup of the sewers and stuff. And what they'll they'll do is they'll they'll charge it with uh, high levels of chlorine to, to make it safe. And but they don't tell you. Oh, you know, we just added ten times as much chlorine to your water. And then at that high level, and you know it's gonna it's gonna hurt your plants. It'll it'll stunt them. You know, they should grow back. You know, I've I've used really high levels of hydrogen peroxide on plants that had root rot and you know it stunted them but they grew new roots and came back so it's not one of these oh it, you know yes or no but if you're going to do compost tea you should either use spring water or at least let your water sit overnight in a side reservoir let it warm. it's good to let it warm up to room temperature anyway i always recommend a side reservoir in hydroponics so the day before I do my reservoir change, I, I fill up my side garbage can with with my tap with my water, and then the next day I pump out my reservoir, take the, the pump, put it back in the in the side reservoir, fill it, refill it. It's room temperature, it's clean, ready to, to start a new crop. Make it it's easy, fast, and and it works well. So uh, you should do it, and if you wanted to. To warm up the water a little quicker, you can put a submersible heater in your side reservoir to let it warm up quick, more quickly. Not a bit, not, not a huge thing, but I remember when I first started, I remember doing my reservoir changes and bailing out the water with buckets. And after, you know, man, what a pain it is to do that. Take them down, dump them in, then get another bucket, take it down, bump, dump it out. How easy it is to put a submersible pump, a water mover with a hose, you know, a simple water mover that you can get at Home Depot and have that whole job done in five minutes. But with the side reservoir, you can replace it with room temperature water that's clean and free of chlorine. Definitely makes it so much easier. Uh, where I live, my city tap water comes in at 485 ppm, so it's extremely high. I don't even use it because I've tried to use it on plants before and like they were not happy with it. So uh, I ended up investing in a RO system. So now I use RO water. I, I know there's some people that have tried to use a water, so they have a water softener mm. and they try to use that water. Can you talk to us about the downsides of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, don't use a water softener unless you change your salt in your water softener. What a water softener does is it takes the calcium and magnesium out of the water and replaces it with sodium. You know, salt is sodium chloride. But you get up above 50 parts per million of sodium and the plants aren't going to reach their genetic potential. So, I mean, if you have 100 parts, 120 parts per million of calcium and you replace it with 120 parts per million of sodium, that's a bad day for your plant. So, I, I bypass that the uh, on my water softener or I've done this in the winter where instead of using the regular Morton salt sodium chloride there's another type of Morton salt that's potassium chloride it's more expensive than sodium chloride but then you're replacing the calcium and magnesium with potassium and potassium is actually a fertilizer for the plant. It's the health element. So you're doing something good for your plants. So I've done that. If I had to use the water softener, I would, yeah, I would use the potassium chloride salt. Uh, RO is great. I love it. But once I learned about how to turn my lemons into lemonade and get more calcium uptake, 
I haven't used my RO filter unless I just want to top off the reservoir you know, with some fresh water. Uh, the RO water by itself does have has no buffer, so the pH can swing pretty wildly. So um, personally, I like to have a combination, if you're going to use it, a combination of tap water and, you know, that's room temperature and uh, RO water. So you have some buffer there. Let's get deeper into pH. What is the optimal pH range for medicinal plants? And you mentioned buffer. What are some ways to buffer the pH? Okay. Um, good pH range, safe, 5.8 to 6.4. It's always been the sweet spot. I let it drift between the two. I don't try to get the perfect pH all the time. When I change the reservoir, I typically shoot for 6.0. Some growers will shoot for 5.8. Either one is good. I just like 6.0 because when I use the pH test kit, like the GH pH test indicator solution, if it's 6.0 when you're doing your test, it's dandelion yellow, easiest color to see. So I can see if it's perfectly yellow or just a little yellowish green or just a little yellowish amber and I can dial it in pretty simply. So I just go for six hours being my, my target. But 5.8 is good too. Is that for hydroponics as well as soilless medias as well as soil? Soil, you can go a little bit higher in pH. You can go more like 6.5 is a good target, but it can go up to 6.8 you know, in that area because microorganisms that's the the closer to neutral is better for the microbes in the soil so that's their favorite and as the microorganisms are colonizing the roots they are making organic acids that lower the ph right on the surface of the root zone it could be two points lower than the surrounding bulk soil so you can go a little bit higher uh, also you're, with soil, you're going to want to adjust your pH of your soil before you even start. And once it's, your pH is, of your soil is right, it's buffered. It's hard to change the pH one way or the other. So the pH of the water that you're watering with isn't as important anymore because the pH is right there where the plants want it. Um, but with hydroponics, you know, you want to try to, you know, water is not a buffer for pH. So it's really easy to change pH of, of water and hydroponics. Oh, you're talking about buffering. Uh, if you want to add some buffering capacity to your RO so you don't have the wild swings of spiking and crashing pH, just add a little, like I said, add 50-50 uh, tap water to your RO. You're adding some, some buffering capacity, some calcium carbonate, magnesium carbonates, you're adding some beneficial trace elements that, that are good. Spring water has some elements from the earth with it as well. Um, and uh, Or you could add a small amount of humic acid to it if you have that on your shelf. That will add some buffering capacity too. Um, in soilless mix, the, the humic acid will raise the pH of acid soil. It will lower the pH of alkaline soil so it does have a nice buffering capacity. has a lot of positive and negative charges on it to hold and release hydrogen ions and hydroxyl ions. So it buffers. That makes sense. Yeah. So in your master growers course, you mentioned that plants will produce 18 to 20% more essential oils and hydroponics. We're talking about, you know, terpenes, cannabinoids. 
Why is that? And also, is there anything else that gardeners can do in order to increase essential oil production? Yeah, that was one of the very first things I learned in my research on hydroponics for that very first video I did for schools on introduction to hydroponics. There was a study done, must have been in well, in the 80s, late 80s, on hydroponics at the University of Minnesota. And they're the ones that discovered, you know, measured it, that plants grown in hydroponics had 18 to 20% more aromatic oils than full uh, field grown. But they didn't really say why. Uh, I don't really know ex exactly why, what it was about it. But one thing about hydroponics, all of the essential elements are there in the perfect balance, lots of good aeration, per perfect water. Uh, it really helps the plants reach their true genetic potential. And part of that genetic potential is the production of the terpenes. So I think that may be why, just with just hydroponics alone, that there was such a difference. Um, now to increase terpenes, I found in my, I did research on my own along the way and found that healthy stress imp improves the terpene production. Healthy stress. It could be, well, a very common one to use is drought stress because you can do that toward the end, have, have um, longer periods, more dry back be between when you waterings and the plant will respond to that and make terpenes. Uh, the other way is salt stress. With the, that's what I love to do in hydroponics because it's easy to just raise your, your EC, the electrical conductivity, so it's a little bit salty, makes it a little harder for the plant to take up water. And then as a response, they make antioxidants to protect themselves against the, the stress. And some of those are flavonoids and, and um, uh, other molecules and terpenes. And I did do an, one experiment to prove that because I, I kind of knew that. I was taught that early on in my career. But I mixed up some hydroponic nutrients three different strengths. One was half strength, one was full strength according to the directions, one was high strength. And I did side by side in the same environment. The plants with the highest strength, the highest EC, had the, the darkest colors, the richest aromas, strongest flavors. And it wasn't like, oh yeah, I think this is a little better. I mean, it was dramatic difference. You can see it. You know, the three jars side by side, you could see the different color intensity. You open up the jar and take a sniff, you could smell the terpene profile and just in your face. So I would get the highest prices because it was the highest amount of, of vitamins and the highest amount of, of, the, uh, of the terpenes. So, um, yeah, so that, that really helped in, um, when it was trying to be more competitive. If with tomatoes, I could do the same thing. I could raise my EC up even higher. The, uh, you could get 50% more uh, of the lycopene content. That's the, per the, the red pigment. And you could, so it's red all the way through. I could get 30% um, more vitamin C content just by raising the EC. Because again, some of those vitamins that are manufactured are a stress response from the plant. So you don't want to baby them too much. You know, give them some healthy, but too much stress, they can't take up enough water to meet their needs. Then they start getting crispy on the edge. You get your fertilizer burned, and it has a negative effect on the growth and, and productivity of the plant.
So if you want to be a great gardener, learn how to manage stress. Manage the stress of the plant. If you go a little too high, the leaves start to curl at the ends. You go, then just back off on the stress. If, but if um, if they're they turn, they start to curl and turn brown on the edge. You know you've gone too far. You have to you have to make a, write a note. The best growers are the best record keepers. Do not go past this EC. That's the top line for that particular strain, and just live close to the line and your plants will thank you. Good advice. Yeah, I know a lot of people doing precision stress methods in order to try to increase the terpene profile. And uh, yeah, I hear it from so many different people that it works for them. I mean, just me and my garden, wind stress. I mean, that that's a thing. Uh, from, I, can, I can see the plants that are right next to the fan that's blowing uh, somewhat harshly against it. I could see a clear difference in trichome production on those plants versus the plants that were further away. So wind stress is a thing as well. Mm. Um, I mean, you talked about the other ways that uh, you can stress the plant in a precision method in order to increase terpenes. So mm -hmm. that's really good to know. Just remember at the end, you don't want to get too much heat stress at the very end, like when they're growing into the lights, because that will evaporate the terpenes too. So you'll lose some. So you, you, know, you might want to at the end kind of cool it down a little bit to preserve the terpene profiles. And also that could lead to foxtailing, right? Which is a, a characteristic that some people actually like, but uh, a lot of people find it undesirable, you know, and they're, they're uh, final flowers. So yeah, he, he, increased heat can definitely do that. My, my theory on the, on the foxtailing is the combination of the heat and phosphorus. You know, a phosphorus toxicity shows up as a zinc deficiency. And zinc is critical for making the growth hormones, the auxins, IAA. So if you get too much phosphorus and too much heat, the combination, then the, it affects the hormonal balance of the plant. And so instead of the, the flower buds filling in, they want to just do more cell division and, and foxtail out. But you'll see it if they're further away from the lights, you don't see it as, as much, uh, a foxtailing. Yeah. Now, phosphorus is temperature dependent too. So if you have cooler temperatures, it doesn't take up as much phosphorus. But if you have high temperatures and high phosphorus, then it's taking up more phosphorus too. And then it can build up to toxic levels in the tissue. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Mm -hmm. So we talked about increasing terpenes. I want to kind of flip it over to increasing yield. A common way to do it, very common, is CO2. Can you talk to us about the benefits of supplementing CO2 and what CO2 level is ideal? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, the light is the limiting factor. So you want to get the, the most light, best quality light you can to your plants. And that's a whole other story. I'm getting ready to start some lighting trials in a, in a facility we just built using interlighting and also subcanopy lighting. But, you know, light is number one. Now, once light is no longer the limiting factor, then CO2 becomes the limiting factor. If you're in a closed room and the plant uses up, takes in the carbon dioxide for photosynthesis under those lights, they can deplete the CO2 in the room. If they deplete it down to, say, 200 parts per million, the plants will stop growing. So a deficiency of CO2 is actually worse than the benefit, beneficial effects of increased CO2. So at the very least, you want fresh air coming in to replace the, 
the depleted CO2 in your room at the very end. Now, on the other hand, if you increase the uh, CO2 in the atmosphere to say 700, between 750 and 1500 ppm, you could see a 50% increase, 30 to 50% increase in yield easily if you have a good light and air movement. So, so yeah, but you don't need CO2 at night, only during the day. You um, don't want to go too high either. If you get up above, well, up above 1500, you're wasting CO2. The plants will start to close the stomata. Also, here's a, here's a little tip. I learned this along the way. It's better to ramp up your CO2 as well when you're going from veg to bloom and you're under heavier production. You don't want to just go from 400 ppm to 1200 overnight because the plant will has to adapt to that high CO2. It'll close the stomata so until it has a chance to adapt. So if you ramp it up slowly, the plants will adapt better and they'll respond better to the CO2. Because if they close their stomata, then they're not transpiring as much. They're not taking up nutrients as much. You can even get a nutrient deficiency. Same way, if you have excess, you get up to say 5,000 parts per million of CO2, it'll close up the stomata so much that it can burn your plants. It'll look like fertilizer burn. The edge of the leaves will actually turn brown. You get up to 10,000 or higher, it's not even good to be in the room for an extended period of time as a grower. You know, so there's OSHA standards there. But if you, but between, I think 1200 PPM for the, is a, a good goal, a nice target. Now in Arizona, in the tomato production, hydroponic tomato production, with all that light, the, you know, a, a cloudless day in the summer, high light intensity, they'll go up as high as 2000 PPM during the peak of the day because the plant can use it then. Um, so, um, yeah, I saw that they actually have light sensors in the greenhouses that it measured the accumulated sunlight for the day and the computer will adjust the CO2 for the prevailing uh, conditions, environmental conditions. Another thing they do commercially is they, they need to have heating at night. It's cold in the desert. So during the day, they're they're using the boiler and they're producing CO2. And then they pump the hot water into storage tanks, insulated tanks. At night, they run that hot water through the pipes in the greenhouse to warm the root zone and warm the canopy at night. So they're getting double duty. CO2 during the day when they need it, heat at night when they need it. That's smart. Yeah, and it's very automated as well. That's awesome. Very automated. There's one other thing I want to get into, which I think the audience will gain value from, which is bricks. Now, you had mentioned that 12% or higher bricks, pests won't recognize the plant as food. So I know there's a lot of people listening in. They battle grow after grow after grow. They've got pests. They're spraying their plants to prevent pests. They're spraying their plants when they have pests. But they're not even looking at bricks. Talk to us about bricks. What is bricks? How do you measure it? And how do you increase bricks? Okay. Now the, the organic gardeners know, know a lot about bricks. They've been using it for years. You, um, now remember, it's really, the t this bottom line is a measurement of the sugar content in the sap. That's the main measurement. Uh, it also kind of measures the total dissolved solids as well. 
Organic elements don't conduct electricity, like sugar. So you can't use an EC meter like you would for your measuring your salts, for your fertilizer. You just won't register on there. But the more total dissolved solids and sugar in the in water, the more it reflects, reflects light. So a refractometer is how you measure it. You take a few drops, drops of sap from the leaf, first fully developed leaf near the top of the plant. You squeeze out a, a two or three drops of sap onto a slide of this refractometer, look through it, and you can, because it's bending the light, you can actually read it like a thermometer what the BRICS level is. And the goal, for me anyway, is 12% or higher. Uh, for very healthy, it's measuring the, indicating the, the current nutritional status of the plant. So to increase it, first thing I do, if I go into a, as a consultant, go into a room or into a greenhouse, first thing I'll do is a BRICS test. If the BRICS is too low, I'm going to adjust potassium to nitrate ratio. In the fertilizer. That's the very first thing. Either reduce the nitrogen, increase the potassium, or do a little of both. The, like I said, if you overdo it with nitrates, which most growers do, they think, oh, I need the yield. Give it more nitrogen. Well, they just, it, the plant will, it's a luxury element. The plant's going to take up nitrate nitrogen whether it needs it or not. But it takes a lot of energy away from photosynthesis. About 30% of the energy of the plant goes into assimilating the nitrates. So you give it more and more nitrates, it'll, it'll take it in. But the bricks, the, the, uh, the stored sugars go down. And also with too much nitrogen, you get big cells with thin cell walls. It's an easy meal for insects. It, it's an, very easy for, for fungus to get attached. So the number one thing to increase growths Bricks is not to over-fertilize, especially with nitrogen. Cut back to the lower end of the sufficiency range of your plants. And I do leaf analysis too in our, my facility and check out what, what the nitrogen is. And I've been continually, I've been cutting back even what I thought was a good number. I'm, I'm realizing the plants don't need that much nitrogen. And if I can cut it back, the bricks goes up. And potassium on the other end, potassium is the health element. It helps in carbohydrate metabolism to manufacture the sugars. Also, it helps in loading the sugars into the sap. And also, it helps activate enzymes that will convert the stored sugars, the starches, into sugars that can flow to the flowers and be stored in the fruit. So potassium is a good thing. I like to raise that, but lower my nitrogen until I find that sweet spot. Pardon the pun, the sweet spot. Now, we can go beyond... Want to go beyond that, you're going to want to improve the uptake of nutrients. So the kelp, humic acid, you get more lateral root growth, more root mass. You have a sponge of roots. It's going to take up more water and minerals, do more chemical reactions, higher bricks. So we can do it at the roots. We can do it with the foliar at the, at the leaves. And we can, uh, of course, first just make sure we have a balanced nutrient for the plants. And the bricks goes up. Uh, trace elements are important for that too, because it stimulates metabolism at the root zone, and uh, stimulates the metabolism of microorganisms. And there are some microorganisms that literally make volatile organic compounds 
that tell that turn off the sugar signal in the plant. So later in the in toward harvest, the plant doesn't know it has enough stored carbohydrates, so it continues to do photosynthesis, continues to make sugars all the way to the day of harvest. So if we can stimulate some of the microbes like Bacillus subtilis, GBO3, maybe add some molasses toward the end. The molasses won't go into the plant, but it'll feed the microbes, and the microbes will tell the plant make more sugar. Um, one last part of that is iron. Iron is one of the limiting factors in soil. It gets oxidized, turns into rust really easily, and then it becomes unavailable. But iron is a cofactor in the production of chlorophyll, the pigment that absorbs the light and makes the sugars. So if we get good iron uptake, trace elements, then that again is going to contribute to your bricks in the end. Iron, copper, manganese um, are, the, are the big ones. One more thing, uh, remember CO, CO2, right? At ambient CO2, Rubisco, the, that's the enzyme in photosynthesis that actually assimilates the carbon dioxide, changes into organic carbon. Um, that is the limiting factor under ambient CO2. If you're growing at high CO2, then Rubisco is no longer the limiting factor because there's extra carbon dioxide for the plant to take in. And in that case, um, the electron transport chain becomes the limiting factor. And those, that's where those trace elements uh, availability are going to really shine for increasing your bricks at the end. So much good information. Bricks can definitely be beneficial for sure. This whole episode has just been fantastic. I think my audience is going to get a lot of value from it. We are coming up towards the end here. And one thing I want to give you the opportunity is to tell the listeners, how can they find you? And do you have anything upcoming in the future that you want to talk about? Yeah, I guess so. Um, not real easy to find me these days because I'm I'm not teaching my classes this year. My online, the one you did, the Master Grower Short Course. But I am going to restart that and I'm going to add new material. Because I've been working in the commercial facilities for the last few years. So I have some things to add to that I didn't do in the short course. But right now, I guess the easiest way would just be to email me. Send me an email and say, hey, when are your classes starting up? I'll try to keep track of that and let you know. And my email is harley, H-A-R-L-E-Y, like the motorcycle, dot, P as in Peter, H as in hotel, T is in Tom, harley.pht at gmail.com. So just send me and just drop me an email and we can keep in touch. Uh, I don't really like getting phone calls and texts because I work full time. It interrupts me too much. But an email, I check them every day. And, um, you know, as long as I'm not too exhausted after a 12 hour day, I will, I'll be happy to respond or at least let you know what's coming. Awesome. Are, are you on uh, social media at all? Like, do you have a YouTube channel or Instagram or anything like that or no? I don't have my own channel, but if you uh, Google Harley Smith YouTube, you'll find a lot of free um, workshops on there and lectures. It's a good place to get started. I even have some that are just 60 second long, uh, little clippets that are pretty popular on different subjects. Yeah, so start there. 
I do have an Instagram and my tag is Harley 500 for Instagram. But when I start doing classes again, I'll call you because I'm really going to need to learn how to do social media. Come into the 21st century for a little while here and get the word out to as many people as we can. Yeah, let me know. I'm definitely willing to help. I'll definitely have a link to something to your channel or to your Instagram or something down in the YouTube description section below so folks can easily access that. Folks, if you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up. Also subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode and I'd love for you to tune into future episodes. Harley, thanks so much for coming on. This has been awesome. It's uh, it's really cool that I was able to go through your Master Growers course and then be able to pick your brain further <laughs> because I uh, definitely, uh, definitely learned a few things in this one. And uh, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I think my audience is going to get a lot of value from this one. So thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you for having me. Peace out, everyone. Catch you in the next episode.